my um, finger. I decided not to scream it though. You were trying to do um, Noddy Holder. Yeah, I was. Isn't the guy just the weather? <laughs> Should we talk about the weather? If you want to, it's raining. Uh, it's, it's, there's not much we can say about it. It's raining it's, and it's cold. It's raining, yes. Welcome, everybody, to the Hey Kids Comics annual Christmas special. Because it's rather stupid to, to not have an annual Christmas special, isn't it? I have oh. pushed to do this monthly, but apparently that was overruled. Oh, we, we should have our um, Christmas episode in the middle of summer. That would confuse people. It would. Because that would be a surprise. It's like... Unless you're Australian. Unless you're Australian. Oh, you well, they still have Christmas at Christmas time. It's just it's in the summer. But you yeah. watch BBC Three a lot. Why you watch BBC Three? Because I have thought that the most obvious time to throw a surprise party for somebody is, is on, the, on the birthday. birthday. That seems a bit silly to me. So you should just throw people surprise parties generally. Yeah. Surprise! Gosh, it really is. <laughs> What's it for? <laughs> I just felt like a surprise party. Anyway, I have taken us off topic of our Christmas Christmas celebrations. Slade has been listened to. Turkey has been eaten. Roast spuds. Nom, 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 gravy. Lots of other stuff that I'm sure we've eaten. <laughs> I will eat. Shut up! You're ruining oh, the illusion. I want some turkey now. I, I feel like, Rick, like they must do when they record the Christmas Doctor Who. Yeah. In the middle of August. <laughs> we should have fake snow. Yeah. Sorted around. Fakes know that no one but us can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would so totally work in an audio medium. It would. It wouldn't it, really? Uh, I'm... You have fakes everywhere. Gosh. Yes, we do. By golly. I'm glad I keep you around. It starts snowing. The snow. I've got a Santa hat on. Have you? Yes. And I've got the old... Elfies. You feel dressed like an elf. Yeah. <laughs> You're my Dudley Moore. <laughs> Now that would make you Mrs. Claus. How you doing? Still here. <laughs> <laughs> Michael gets embarrassed at public shows of uh, mother and father affection. I wouldn't don't say you? public, it's just... Edit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is Christmas, and what have you done? 52 episodes of a podcast, that's what we've done! Hey! 52? 52. 52! Do we not belong to the DC Corporation now? Why? We're not a new 52. 52. Okay. We're an old 52. We're a... Well, you are. <laughs> Get out! Take your fake snow with you. <laughs> Comedy gold. Um, have we introduced ourselves this week? Uh, no, we have not. Uh, who are you? Well, I'm a little elf and you're Santa, apparently. An old Santa. Oh, oh, oh. Oi! Not old. Seasoned. Senile. <laughs> What was I saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, no, I'm Andrew Leyland. Uh, I'm Michael Leyland. I'm dressed as Father Christmas. I have a big bushy beard. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. You wish. After 52 <laughs> years of work. Uh... It's audio! If I want to tell them I've got a bushy beard, they will totally buy into it! Okay. Oh, dear me. The illusion. The illusion is shattered. I am dressed as Santa. Michael is dressed as an elf. He looks very pretty. My wife has nothing on but tinsel. Still here. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. She's, she's much more dressed than that. Um, so another Christmas has rolled around, hasn't it? More like jumped. More like jumped. Um, and we gave a great deal of thought to what to do for Christmas. Last year, 
we did an audio commentary as well as covered some Christmassy type comics but this year like with episode 100 I think we thought that we'd just stick with what we know didn't we yes pick a handful of Christmas themed comic books that we love and share them with you so three count them three three choices tonight one from me another from you one from my kind of middle one a middle one that you chose that I, that I chose yeah and, and one from you yeah yes so but that is all to come Gay, we're getting good at teasing aren't we yeah we're getting quite good at that at this teasing like first up emails our first email is from Tom Panarese hi Tom Grant Morrison versus Spongebob Squarepants that sounds like a really interesting fight. It does sounds awesome, that, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Andrew and Michael. I know Michael is a huge fan of Grant Morrison, and he did an excellent job of covering Final Crisis low those many months ago. After listening to it, I actually liked it more than I did when I read it. During Thanksgiving weekend, while my family was staying at my in-laws outside of Washington, D.C., Nickelodeon ran the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Being that my five-year-old son, Brett, loves the cartoon, and I knew it would keep him occupied for a couple of hours, I let him watch it. Excellent parenting, I know. I was half paying attention until I began to notice that it had a plot that was very similar to Final Crisis. Needless to say, I was intrigued and wound up watching the entire film. We're going to interrupt Tom for a second, though. I think we should all say hello to Brett. Hello, Hello, Brett. It's a good film. It is. Yeah. I've seen SpongeBob SquarePants movie, haven't I? With Hasselhoff. I'm David Hasselhoff. Yes. To continue with Tom's email. The plot, briefly. It can't be like Final Crisis, then. If you can sum the plot up briefly... It's not Final Crisis. The plot, briefly, is as follows. If you're unfamiliar with the cartoon, then I'll tell you there is an ongoing epic battle between two fast food chains in Spongebob's hometown of Bikini Bottom. The Krusty Krab, which is run by Mr. Eugene Krabs, who is voiced by Clancy Brown, by the way. And the Chum Bucket, which is run by the diabolical, psycholoptic, single-celled Plankton. Spongebob works as a fry cook at the Krusty Krab, whilst he's always put upon neighbour Squidward as a cashier. You, you know that, that his daughter, Mr. Krabs' daughter, is voiced by the boss, who also voices, what's her face, Diane, Diane Simmons. Simmons. Is it? Yeah. I'm Diane Simmons. Where do your loyalties lie, Spongebob? <laughs> <laughs> the movie opens, continues Tom's email, with Plankton having been foiled at getting a hold of Mr. Krabs' secret formula for Krabby Patties time and time again. Finally enacting this last diabolical plan in his filing cabinet of diabolical plans. Plan Z. This involves stealing the crown of King Neptune and framing Mr. Krabs. He's successful in this punishment. Krabs is sentenced to death, although he gets a stay of execution by being frozen solid while Spongebob and his best friend Patrick Starfish head off to Shell City to retrieve the crown. Shell City is a dangerous place that is terrorised by an evil Cyclops. Much like Avengers vs. X-Men, then. Whoa! While Spongebob is gone and Krabs is frozen, Plankton steals the Krabby Patty secret formula and begins serving them at the Chum Bucket, offering a free Chum Bucket hat with each purchase. (laughs) It turns out, however, this was sort of a ruse. The helmets are radio-controlled and turn all who wear them into mindless slaves of Plankton, which Squidward discovers to his horror when the mindless slaves converge on him like zombies in a Romero flick. Spongebob and Patrick, after much misadventure, make it to Shell City and are abducted by the Cyclops, who happens to be a scuba diver who intends to dry them out and sell them as trinkets. He places them under a heat lamp, and they are about to completely dry out when one of Spongebob's tears shorts out the lamp and the smoke from the shorted wire sets off the shop's sprinkler systems. 
This rehydrates all of the trinkets, who then assaults the Cyclops. SpongeBob and Patrick retrieve the crown and then get help from the ultimate hero of the beach, David Hasselhoff. No, really, the Hoff, in full Baywatch regalia, to get themselves back to Bikini Bottom and save the day. How do they save the day? Well, they confront Plankton and SpongeBob destroys the helmet's control over the residents of Bikini Bottom by playing a killer song, a version of I Wanna Rock by Twisted Sister. And of course, they all live happily ever after. Have a goofy goober! <laughs> Now, the film came out in 2004, which was a few years before Final Crisis. And while I'm pretty sure that Morrison did not rip this movie off, or it was in any way influenced by it, I can't help but laugh at the coincidental similarities. Plankton is dark side, forever searching for a secret formula, the anti-life equation. And SpongeBob is Superman, sent off on a quest to a strange world when the thing he loves the most, his job in SpongeBob's case, Lois Lane in Superman's case, is threatened to be destroyed. You could very well say that the dried sea life that comes back and revolts against the humans keeping them in captivity are the residents of Limbo, and that David Hasselhoff is a Superman robot used in Superman Beyond. Plus, there's the fact that the villain's plan involves mind-controlling helmets, and he's foiled by the perfect music, although a killer rock performance is definitely more involved than one note to activate a miracle machine. So is this me insulting Grant Morrison, or praising the writers of SpongeBob SquarePants? I have no idea. I do know that I appreciate the fact that I can sit through my son's entertainment without wanting to claw my eyes out, and knowing your opinions of Mr. Morrison's work, I thought you'd appreciate it. I promise my next email will be more on topic, as I'm in the middle of the first Prodigal episode and really enjoying it, and we'll definitely have some thoughts on that. All the best, Tom. Thanks, Tom. We got a big kick out of that, didn't we? I want to watch the Spongebob movie again. <laughs> you want to watch the Spongebob Squarepants movie and annotate Final Crisis? Yeah. In fact, you know what you should redo? What should you I should redraw Final Crisis with Spongebob Squarepants characters. <laughs> I think that would be totally awesome, in my humble opinion. Our next email is from Paul Spataro. Hello, Paul. Hello to our lovely listener. Hello, I have spoke to Paul. Have you? Paul and I were on the James Bond show together, which yeah. was an awesome piece of podcasting, but nothing to do with Christmas. Okay. But, so. Hi, guys. Hi, Paul. I'm sitting listening to the beginning of your coverage of Prodigal. I'm looking forward to it, as it's a run that I have yet to read. I enjoy the fact that your coverage seems to equally cover things that I have read and remember most fondly, some not so much, and others that I haven't read but should. I thought that I would add my tuppence to the discussion of Venom as an anti-hero. As I see it, this was doomed to fail, because it was simply a marketing strategy and not developed organically over time. Venom had already been presented as a killer, and some bean counter decided he should be an anti-hero, which was defined by Marvel's very limited experience with anti-heroes, i.e. Wolverine and Punisher. Based on that definition, Venom had to be presented as a killer with a heart of gold. His motives had to be good, although his methods could be suspect. This was a betrayal of every aspect of the characters previously presented. Instead, his motivation should have been the same as always, and he still could have been thrust into a situation where, despite his bad intentions, it served his purposes to align himself on the side of the angels. Certainly, we've seen and read stories where our protagonist is a charismatic character with otherwise no redeeming qualities. Tony Soprano comes to mind as a prime example of that. His character was so charismatic that we always found ourselves rooting for him, even against the forces of good, despite the fact we were fully aware that he was really the villain of the piece. I believe that Venom could have benefited from a presentation of this nature, where he was more of a multi-layered character, consistent with his prior appearances, and not a virtually different character. That's all for now. Keep up the good work. Paul. Thank you, Paul. I think that's essentially what we said, isn't it? Mm. If there'd been some defining motive behind his suddenly becoming heroic, which I still don't buy, mm. 
then I probably could have bought into it, but there wasn't, was there? It, it was, was just a dark, curse your son, but I never told you. <laughs> it was Ben himself's comics! I think that was his motivation. Yeah. Our next email is from Chris Keith. Hello, Chris. And it's just titled Superman Commentary. Greetings, lads. Greetings, Chris. I hope that December is not too blustery in the UK. <gasps> it is 80 degrees in Dallas. Probably minus 80 it's here. Mi- it's minus three. Is it? It was minus three the other night, yeah. So it's not blustery, just cold. And, and, wet. This is, and wet. This is G.I. Joe production weather. <laughs> And yes, if looking for a reason why I persisted living in the South, you found it. Relatively no cold weather. I just have to endure butchering of the English language. A one-syllable word is just one syllable. No need to stretch it out, Paula Dean. Cousin marrying, to clarify my wife's maiden name, was not Keith. Small talk with co-workers about hunting and fishing. And of course, the once-a-year question from out of time was, where is the Kennedy Sixth Floor Museum? Yes, I was born here, but I have no real desire to see a spot where an assassin shot the president. It's a little morbid. Enough Texas talk. Although I was laughing out loud listening to you quote James Van Der Beek from Varsity Blues a few episodes back. I'm glad my failed Southern impression went down well. <laughs> it's just the best way to take your uh, impressions. <laughs> well, just laugh at them. Yeah. <laughs> Uncontrollably. Yes, just, just accept it and laugh. Okay. Today I would like to address Superman 3's commentary and a little bit of Superman in general. Superman 3 was a movie that I wanted to like when I was a kid. I had the novel, the movie glasses, from wherever they were sold, and went into the theatre hoping for something similar to Superman 2. Not so much. Don't get me wrong, I liked the evil Superman plot, but Richard Pryor? I just never found him funny. Not that I disliked everything he did, but I think my dislike of him stemmed from thumbing through records, yes, vinyl, at a record store as a child, and coming across one of his more politically incorrect titles for an album. I was eight. That was a bad word, as I had been taught. And here's Richard Pryor with a costume and... Well, I'm obviously not going to say it. Just look it up on Amazon. Search Richard Pryor Super and you'll see what I mean. I never liked him after seeing that album, so having him with Superman just struck me as off. I liked parts of the movie, but wanted to love it and couldn't. I want to see this album cover now. It's Richard Pryor dressed in a Superman suit. Oh, right. But he's not Superman. He's super something else. Quentin Tarantino uses the word a lot because he thinks he's down with the homies. Ah, right. How many is that? A lot. What? I was quoting Reservoir Dogs with Leaf now. Oh, right. It's a regular machine day in. Day yeah, day. yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a John Holmes. Yeah. Mother Funster. <laughs> or Melon Farmer, which was my favourite <laughs> replacement. I think that was in the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah. Wasn't it? Um, the movie got me thinking about something that Michael Bailey, on some other show, said about Superman Returns, about how disappointed he was in the fact that Superman never threw a punch. My immediate response at the time, to my iPod, which must have looked silly, was, you mean like that throwdown fight that Superman had in Superman the movie? You know, where he hit no one. But then I started thinking, Superman never actually threw a punch in Superman 2 either. Sure, he threw people, but I don't recall a single uppercut or Benjamin J. Grimish haymaker. No, just wrestling. I'm going to watch 3 again, and since starting the email, I rewatched the fights in 3 and 4. Three decent fights with punches thrown. However, if it was entirely in his mind, then no punches. And 4, one punch. Superman punches Captain Claws in the back while flying. <laughs> okay, this fighting talk got me thinking even more about 2. Let's ignore Non for a second, as he and Superman never really went one-on-one. Zod, however, tussled with Superman solo. How does this make sense? I get that Superman is infinitely strong because of the yellow sun. I get that Zod is infinitely strong because of the yellow sun. Chris Reeve is six foot four and maybe two twenty pounds. Chris 
<clears throat> Terence Stamp is mainly five foot nine and weighs maybe 150 pounds. If strength is even due to the sun, then the only difference becomes size. You mean to tell me that 2080 Clark would not mop the floor with 40-year-old Stamp, who has the build of Al Pacino? Come on, and a friend tried to give me the whole, well, he's a military background nonsense. Which part of the fight consisted of crazy Ang Lee martial arts? Not a bit. More of wrestling with a guy who outweighs you by 70 pounds. Don't even get me started on how much of an asshole Superman is for starting a fight in downtown, waiting until he completely destroys most of every city block, endangering the stupidest populace in the history of humanity. Really, Armageddon is going on outside. Now is a good time for Kentucky Fried Chicken or walking around with a baby in a stroller. To then decide that it might be a good idea to take the fight elsewhere? Clark, they were going to follow you anyway. Why not go to, say, a desert? Works for the Hulk, and he's as smart as none. Okay, back to Superman 3. I really wanted them to dial down the camp a bit, but I've always felt that way about the movies. I like Lana better than Lois, which is a no-brainer. Margot Kidder, you could smell the cigarette through the film. In the theatre, it was on your clothes after you left. You had no sense of taste for hours after the film. Annette O'Toole was cute. She's still attractive in her 50s, and she's married to Michael McKean, who played Perry White in Smallville. How cool is that? I wish she would have come back for four instead of introducing the leotard wearing Hemingway. No interest. Robert Vaughn. I can hear snippets of him during the commentary and I realise his real voice sounds like Andy's attempt at an American accent. Cracked me up when I noticed it because that's Vaughn's real voice. By the way, after basketball, I can never ever take him seriously again. So that means my American accent is quite good then. Yeah. If it sounds like a genuine American, <laughs> I'm down with that. In summer. Possibly, but Robert Vaughn's an American. There you go. In summary, another excellent episode, and it prompted me to go back and watch again. The only reason I didn't buy the Blu-ray set last year was because, A, the cost, and 2, because I had a metal case version for 2006. I may try and pick it up just to have it in HD. Thanks again for all that you do, and I eagerly look forward to the rest of Prodigal. Listen to episode 1 of it on Saturday and loved it. Chris Keith. P.S. I don't know if it was Geek Speak or Raging Bullets who mentioned this tidbit, but since we're talking Superman, if you've ever watched the Donner Cut, one glaring issue with it, Clark beats the hell out of the trucker, just as he did in the Lester Cut. However, he spun the earth backwards, so none of that happened. The guy was beaten up, from, with no idea why this glasses-wearing gentleman pummeled him. I almost felt bad for him. Almost. That was the first thing I noticed when I watched the Richard Donner Cut. Okay. That he turns back time at the end of the film, because that's originally how Superman 2 was going to end. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes to the, the diner and beats up the guy who, who beat him up. But if he's turned back time, the bully's not going to know him, yeah. Him up, yeah. So it was the first thing I noticed about the Richard Donner cut. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I don't prefer the Richard Donner cut. Fair enough. But that, and it's very choppy. But that's just me. And there's no taking off of the telephone S and, and chucking it at none. <laughs> that minor inconvenience. That minor inconvenience. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your email. Always appreciated. Our next email is from Chris McGee, which just says, 100th episode. To the point. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Leylands. Hello, Chris. You're not allowed to watch out, listen to our show if you call Chris. I mean, it's different spellings, obviously. Um, no, I think we have Luke's and... Oh, yeah, that, that, that puts great, great holes in my argument, doesn't it? It does. It does. And Tom's. And Tom's. Yeah. Okay. No women, though. No. Well, no woman's ever emailed it. Apart from your mum, obviously. But she doesn't count. I don't know. 
Uh, I just wanted to congratulate you all on your 100th episode of Hey Kids Comics. Truly a milestone you should be proud of. I first heard about your podcast from Scott Gardner. Hi, Scott. Over on Two True Freaks. He'll listen if we mention it. <laughs> Where was I? He kept talking about this great new podcast called Hey Kids Comics. When I finally had a chance to listen, I was hooked. I have since gone back to download and listen to every single episode and enjoyed them all. But my favourite one of all was a couch potato episode featuring the 70s Spider-Man. <laughs> really? That was your favourite? <laughs> Maybe we, just, oh, fair enough. maybe we were just really funny in that one episode. I don't recall. I, I remember us sitting there watching that going, does this scene ever end? Yeah. Wow, 70s television was really slow, think, wasn't well, it? Either the one where I was half asleep or the one where I was eating. Either way, it must have been really funny. I think you were asleep for most of them. Yeah. I remember I, I roped your sister in on the Superman one because you were like, oh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I'm just proof positive. That some people like some, it. Somebody's, something is always somebody else's favourite. So yeah. that's fair enough. The idea of a father and son teaming up to do a podcast, continues Chris's email, is the greatest idea since, well, since Darth Vader asked Luke to join him in ruling the galaxy's father and son. In fact, if you two were to put your mind to it, the Leylands could rule the world of podcasting and restore order to the galaxy. I don't know if I'd want to bring order to a lot of people who <laughs> do podcasts. <laughs> that sounds like it'd be too much like hard work. Yeah reading everyone in well thank you anyway we appreciate that um, continue to put out great episodes of Hey Kids and I thank you both for your dedication and the hours of enjoyment you bring to countless people around the world they're not countless Chris <laughs> no you can count them on, you, on your fingers yeah if, if I took like my hands and then took my socks off and then you took your hands and took your socks off and then we use your mum's foot that'd be about that'd probably be all of them why do we need to take our it's socks off I mean, yes, we would. I mean, we we know that we have five toes. Why would we need to take our socks off? Oh, it's just just <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're sincerely Chris McGee. Thank you, Mr. McGee. Well, you've only got five toes. <laughs> uh, our next email is from Michael Bertley. Hello, Michael. Hello and greetings and happy Christmas to the Leylands. Let's get comfy. <laughs> Uh, episode 100, Superman 3 and Prodigal, or Keep Your Hands Off My Power Supply, which is the subject heading. Hello, Michael. Hello. We thank you for your little bumper that you sent, Michael. I'm Dan Dio. <laughs> <laughs> there was no crises. Never was. It's a five-year timeline. Damien is ten years old. <laughs> that was great. Um... I've, I've, we've, we've gone on tangents again, haven't we? Uh, well, the time has come, continues Michael's email, or starts Michael's email, I should say, where I sit down in front of the computer and write an email to a show that has become the reason to get up on Thursday. Or in some cases, stay up really late, wait for the show to drop, download it, go to bed, and then listen to it the next day. Is this when you're not writing your notes in the car? <laughs> I don't think he does that all the time. <laughs> but we thank him, he stays up to download our show, that's quite nice. That, the, he, he was who was downloading one of the five downloaders this morning. <laughs> Yeah, I put the new episode up today, and um, before it had said it had finished, uh, it, the other thing that I put it to said that five people had already downloaded it before I'd posted it to Facebook. Yeah. So there's five people who had downloaded the episode yeah. before I'd finished uploading it. So. There's people who, who would wait in queues, who would have little tents. Fair play to them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm down with them. I just want to know who these five people are. I would love to know who those five people are. Or is were. it iTunes automatically downloading them? It could have been, actually. It could be iTunes have automatically started downloading people that subscribe. Yeah. That's a thought. You've ruined that for me. <laughs> I had visions of them sitting at the computer going, Where's this week's Hey Kids? Where is it? Now, Where is it? Now we know that's true. Yeah. Well, 
I don't think he sits looking at his computer before he goes to bed. Yeah. I think that's that's I think that's asking a bit much. <laughs> Anyway, to quote Andy, I have some catching up to do. You may notice there are no comments directed towards your coverage of maximum carnage outside of this paragraph. The episodes were excellent, as always. Well, thank you very much. But I seem to be one of the five people walking around planet Earth right now that collected comics in the 90s that didn't read this storyline. I have the trade paperback, so at some point when I get on a Spider-Man kick, I'll probably take it down and give it a go. But for the moment, I'm blissfully unaware of the story outside of y'all's discussion. Moving on to episode 100... I loved the Zero Hour, Zero Issue, Mark 1, Zero Issue, Mark 2 talk. The second time I collected the Batman titles started with the very issues you covered, so it brought back a lot of good memories from that summer. There I was, all of 18, going to college and diving into the deep end of the DCU with Zero Hour. Well, the main story hasn't held up all that well. Go on. Was this not the year that Michael was doing <laughs> such a thing? Yeah, you know, no, Michael, you've not given us a subheading, dude! Oh, what was the year that you were 18? Was that the year that... Was that... Well, let's have a look. Let's see if we can make one up. The year that Michael started reading DC Comics and left home. I wonder if it could be that. Yeah. That's as good as any, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Whilst the main story hasn't held up all that well, the crossover issues have, and these issues of the Batman titles were a good example. While the Zero Hour crossovers were solid, it was the Zero issues that really grabbed me. Yes, the constant retelling of the origin was a little tiring in the reread, but to be fair, when the books were coming out, I didn't read all of them at once, so I didn't notice it as much as you all did. No, well, you wouldn't if you were reading them as they came out weekly, so... Michael's email continues. Count me in the camp that believes that the removal of Joe Chill as the killer of the Waynes was a mistake. While I liked the majority of Denny O'Neill's reign as editor of the Bat books, there were a few missteps, and this was one of them. To pigeonhole Batman's motivation to be Batman into finding the killer of his parents is a mistake. While it was the catalyst for Bruce to train himself at the peak of physical and mental condition and dedicate his life to ridding Gotham City of crime, it wasn't the be-all and end-all of his vigilante existence. To make it simply about finding Joe Chill is to say that he was driven by vengeance. And while there is some of that in his psychological makeup, I prefer the characterization that was used in the various Bruce Tim animated series, where it's more about ensuring that others wouldn't suffer the same fate he did. It makes Batman a more well-rounded character. I haven't read the new Zero issues, but I'm now looking forward to it. Kudos to Michael for his rant about the continuity doesn't line up like DC is suggesting it should. I enjoyed that quite a bit and feel his pain. The whole five-year thing seems very arbitrary when they announced it, and now the cracks in that timeline are beginning to show. This is why I agree with Andy that they should have just started over from the freaking beginning! I know that suggests that Grant Morrison couldn't have finished his epic Batman storyline, but it doesn't really. Let him finish in a separate series and let the creators craft an all-new, all-different DC universe. Moving on before I start screaming again. And yeah, well, there's nothing we disagree with there, is there? Mm. Taking Joe Chill out of Batman was dumb, and five years... Isn't Dan DiDio? There's a five-year timeline. Damien is ten years old. <laughs> You're sat there squirming and... No! Yep. Dan! No! The family fueled minus Adam, Superman 3 commentary, was a delight. The youngest of the Leylands was adorable, and it was very endearing to hear her reactions to the movie. I also liked hearing Angela. In fact, her interjections are sometimes my favourite parts of the episode, so more of that was better. If ever there was a point for you to interject, and you just sat there going, oh, okay. You could say thank you. Thank you. There you go. Is it just that I pick on you? Possibly. You deflate my pomposity, apparently. <laughs> there you go, I've just been... <laughs> Do you want to go to the toilet? No, I've just been let down like a balloon. To quote Michael Bolton... Like 
To quote Michael Bolton from Office Space, Michael continues, Superman 3 is a very underrated film. I mean, it's far from a good film, but that's what you get when you write a script expecting one of your stars to come on and dazzle you with comedic brilliance and then have to deal with the fact that he's actually going to stick to that script because he's getting over the fact that he did a really bad impersonation of the human torch. I place the blame for the film's fault squarely on the writers, producers and director. They had a really solid cast to work with, but great actors can only do so much with crap dialogue and situations. Superman 3 will always hold a special place in my heart because both it and Superman 2, the Lester Cut, which I prefer by the way, informed my perceptions of who Clark Kent is and how Ian Lewis should get on. The Clark Kent of the first film is a bit of a bumbler, a likeable enough guy, but with the exception of the alley scene, the date that Lois was obviously oblivious to after a flight with the Man of Steel and a comment right at the end, I didn't get the sense of there being much between Lois and Clark. This was changed for the second film, where I honestly felt there was a real friendship between Lois and Clark, until the whole secret identity being revealed thing happened. Before that, I liked the dynamic the two characters had. This was removed for the third film and replaced with something even better. Annette O'Toole was simply amazing as Lana Lang, and I love the scenes in Smallville that don't involve two idiots getting drunk to a Roger Miller soundtrack. Superman 3 showed us a Clark that was an actual character and not a put-on for Superman. This makes perfect sense when you think about it. While Clark had to do a good bit of hiding when he was growing up, he was still pretty much himself in Smallville, so when he heads back, he falls back into that personality. Also, I get the sense that the Clark in the movie is getting over the events of Superman 2. The scene after the reunion is a good example example of this. Lana asks him if he has anyone in his life, and you can really see the loss Clark feels over what happened with Lois. By the way, that really is Reeve playing Earth Angel on the piano. I firmly believe that one of the reasons I got into the Superman comics when I did is that the Clark in the Burn comics reminded me of the Clark in this film. Like Andy, I love the scene in the bowling alley where Clark is mild-mannered, but still pretty bold when he steps in on Brad's supposed bowling lesson. The fact that Reeve freaking towered over the guy playing Brad probably helped too. So yeah, Love the commentary. The Laylers need to team up and do more. Finally, Prodigal. I love Prodigal. The fact that it was the first back crossover I followed as it happened has a lot to do with it. The fact that the story was so strong is also a factor. This was the story that made me a lifelong fan of Tim Drake as a character and I'm glad you all are covering it. I really have nothing to add to your commentary of this leg of the story which will change as the story goes on. There is a moment in an upcoming issue of Robin that still makes me cheer for Tim even if it's probably the wrong feeling to have about it. I agree with Andy about Phil Jimenez's Batman. The cape thing does nothing for me. Otherwise he's a solid and talented artist. That's enough for now. Looking forward to the next episode. Y'all take care, Mikey Mike B. Thank you, Mikey Mike B. And we're at the 30 minute mark, so we can't read anymore. Coming up? No. No, it's alright. It's, it's only that long. We've got one email left. Do you actually want to read it? No. Why not? That would be fun. As you may have guessed, the subject heading is your number one fan. <laughs> no, she has t shirts and everything. <laughs> I wonder that was true. Uh, it's from. <laughs> you didn't get a two true freaks t-shirt. No. Oh. Best send you a red one. No. <laughs> uh, this is from Angela Leyland. You may have guessed. Hi boys. I just wanted to say that I am your number one fan. I'm not a listener, as I get bored of hearing each show over and over during recording and editing, but I would consider myself a fan just to make Andrew feel uncomfortable. Love the show, Steve. XX. Thanks, babe. See, told you we have fans. <laughs> We've got one fan. At least. It's, it's your, it's your mum and my it's wife. Your mama. Your mama. Uh, that's it for emails. Hopefully, after we come back from the break, we'll be a bit more Christmassy. Ready to form Voltron. Thunder! 
Rangers is a job for Superman. By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's Geek Cast. Coming January 1st, 2013 to www. See, it doesn't help if you do the same song at different times. Yeah, should we, we get try, it together? We, we could try harmonizing. Had enough? You did say try, harmonizing. <laughs> and we're back! You don't want a drink? Uh, yeah, go on, man. Alright, let's have another break, then. <laughs> we'll have another break and be back in a minute. Hey, kids, come Fuck her off, kid. I'm talking here. Hey, folks, it's your old pal Murray Clawhammer here. And boy, do I have some good news for you. The Hey Kids Comics podcast is moving! As of January 1st, you can find your Hey Kids Comics podcast on the Two True Freaks feed. That's at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Libsyn spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. I love this show. It's like drinking Earl Grey tea next to the Thames River and having scones instead of sitting in my mom's basement and drinking Dr. Pepper and, and eating Little Debbie snack cakes. Anywho, thanks to some sketchily acquired photographs, Two True Freaks and Demanza Corp anticipate a long and fruitful relationship with Hey Kids Comics. And remember, come New Year's 2013, you can find your Hey Kids Comics at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. L-I-B-S-Y-N! They're British! This offer is void in the event of Mayan prophecy being accurate. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back again. But with 100% less Christmas singing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, three. Count them. Three. three. Christmas comics. For a Christmas show. Are you feeling Christmassy now, Michael? Um, um, 
As you stuff your face with Christmas cake. Yeah. <laughs> you continue to eat cake, I will talk. Right. I will entertain the masses <laughs> while you eat. So I'll cover for you. I'll vamp. I'll just make stuff up while you're dum 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 dum. Was it dum 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 dum? Tommy, yup, nup. Is it <laughs> dubstep of someone eating? Yes, Ewok version. You're yeah, alright. comic book pick tonight is a very special choice for me personally as it was one of the very first American comics I ever bought yes dear listener I have mentioned before how Christmas 1978 was a watershed year for six year old Andrew when his nan purchased him a number of UK annuals which led him down the path labelled comics lover and therefore to be shunned by all women but at six, I didn't care about any of that filth. No, I cared about comics. By this point, I will have been reading the UK reprint title, Spider-Man, which I think at this point will have been called Spectacular Spider-Man Weekly or something like that, along with UK stalwarts such as the Beano and some such. But I was always on the lookout for comics, especially those funny little colour ones that were half the size of our comics. They seemed quite scarce in the late 70s, but this one... Marvel Team Up 79 was, for some reason, on the stands in some tin pot local town we was visiting with my family. To that end, this is a Marvel all-colour comic rather than a Marvel Comics Group comic. Again, we've mentioned before that the few US comics that got over here intentionally were rebranded Marvel all-colour comics. So this has no US price on it, rather a rather large 12p in the corner, covering up what I presume would have been the US price. Oddly enough, this still has a barcode. This was normally replaced by a generic picture of Spider-Man's head, as a US barcode really has no function in a different country. The issue has a stupendous cover by John Byrne and Terry Austin of a large white figure splitting the cover down the middle, whilst a redhead, wearing very little, swipes a sword at him on the left and Spider-Man battles squidgy-looking demons on the right. One of the characters is Marvel's TV sensation, apparently, but which one isn't made clear as it seems to have been randomly dropped at the side of the comic's title, Marvel Team-Up, and the two Team E's, Spider-Man and Red Sonja. Now, I will have had no idea about this TV sensation business, the Nicholas Hammond TV show, not getting over here until 1980. Nor will I have had a clue who Red Sonja was, but I didn't care. This was Spider-Man, in colour. Awesome. I probably had to convince my grandparents to pick this up for me, and I read it over and over, which is why it's a surprise that this is still in mint condition. What do you think of the cover, Michael? Now I've vamped enough for you to eat your cake. It leaps out, but, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I like it, it's just there's something a bit off about it. What's off about it? I don't see anything off about that colour. Cover. I was just going to say some of the colouring choices are a bit unusual. I don't think John Burns are there yet either. Well, this is very early Burn. Yeah. But I think this is quintessential Burn, to be honest with you. Red Sonja's face. Uh, well, so you don't know how much that is down to Terry Austin. Yeah. Because Terry Austin was quite the, the fiddler when it came to, to inking. I think this is quintessential, but I mean, he did get better than this, particularly in Batman Captain America. Mm. But to me, this is, in my mind's eye, this is what I think of when I think of John Byrne's artwork. Sword of the She-Devil was a milestone, celebrating seven years of Marvel team-up. 
In the US, it came out on December 19th, 1978, but as a cover date of March 1979. Thinking about it, what with distribution being what it was, I may not even have got this in 1979. This could have sat on a shelf on some forgotten news agent for months until I got my grubby paws on it. But nevertheless, it was plotted, written and pencilled by Chris Clermont and John Byrne, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Tom Orzechowski, Coloured by Glynis Ween, edited by Al Milgrom, consulted by Roy Thomas, and chiefed by Jim Shooter. What a gorgeous splash page. Mm. <clears throat> anyway, the story begins. Friday, December 22nd, 1978. On the longest night of the year, Spider-Man swings past the Metropolitan Museum of Art on his way to the Daily Bugle Christmas Party. Unbeknownst to him, events inside will soon have a great impact on his life. For in that very edifice, Gus Hovarnis, an elderly security guard, is doing the rounds when his mind is probed and his body used to free a bizarre amulet. News quickly comes in at the Bugle Party of Trouble at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Peter Parker and Charlie Snow, the only non-drinkers on the Bugle staff, are dispatched by Robbie Robertson to check it out. Taking a Bugle radio car, they do just that, Peter lamenting that he could make better time as Spider-Man, only to realise that Murray Jane Watson has stowed away for the ride! Arriving at the museum, a terrible blood-hued beam of energy lances outwards, bathing the sky in purest crimson. Peter disappears to pull off his patented Spider-Man bit, but MJ somehow manages to get past the police lines and into the museum. Inside, Spider-Man is being attacked by the squidgy demon things from the cover, but as MJ witnesses this attack, she passes a sword of the Hyburian Age, and it glows. Because the Metropolitan Museum of Art doesn't seem to have its precious artefacts locked up, MJ picks up the glowing blade, and after a light of purest silver, MJ is gone, and in her place, the she-devil of the high Karen the Hyrcurnian steps the Hyrcurnian that's the one Red Sonia <laughs> sounded like I had a herbal didn't it <laughs> she quickly identifies the man pulling the strings as Kulan Gath high priest of the Nagari and she aids Spider-Man in defeating the demons but when Spider returns the favour and prevents Sonia from being blasted by Gath she hits him with her sword and both end up captured of Gath. Gath monologues about how the amulet held his soul and how this night he was strong enough to ensnare an unwitting host. He ties Sonya and Spider-Man to metal X-shaped stakes and Gath explains that he desires to have the Elder Gods be reborn and become the rightful rulers of mankind. The fiery pit below them is a mystic gateway to Nagari and their lives will open it. Spidey realises that Gath may not be aware of exactly how much time has passed, busts free of his bonds, frees Sonya, and tackles Gath through the entranceway. Both Sonya and Gath are dumbstruck by how much time has passed since their era, and Spider-Man takes advantage of the moment, ripping the amulet from Gath who returns to his mortal form of Gus Hovarnis. Likewise, Sonya metamorphs back into Mary Jane. For some reason, Peter Parker decides to take a cruise around Staten Island. MJ remembers nothing, and as Peter muses, Gath tries to take Peter's soul, but Peter is too strong and hurls the amulet into the Atlantic. The end. Um, I've already mentioned how magnificently, gloriously wonderful the splash page is. 
which I'm sat here stroking. Yeah. It really is gorgeous. Spider-Man swings past the low-hanging moon in front of the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum of Art. Sorry, The colouring and the art are simply beautiful. The moon is coloured a yellow-orange, and the sky is kind of a grey-black with the star peeking through the night sky. In the bottom left-hand corner is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Really, this was Clermont, Byrne and Austin at the top of the game. In fact... Or when they were in a game. Well, yeah. Uh, it was only doing the notes for this issue I realised this was the X-Men Team Supreme, including Letra Tom Ozichowski. Yeah. So essentially this is produced by the people who do the X-Men at this point. When the X-Men was in peak. In its peak. Mm. Never got any better than this. Well, it certainly didn't. It's a glorious cover, isn't it? Glorious splash page. Sorry. Yes. I love the colouring. I think the colouring is brilliant. Like that. It puts light to the fact that a lot of things were coloured badly because of the colouring palette and printing limitations of the time when they can do something as gorgeous as that mm. instead of a yellow sky or a blue sky. Pink well, I don't mind blue skies because blue skies are vaguely <laughs> interesting to you, but a pink sky. Yeah. No, that's just lazy, man. That's gorgeous. Well done, Glynis Ween. You did an exceptionally good job, though. I love the lettering on the title as well. That looks Christmassy. Yeah, well, a little bit Christmassy. Yeah. You may have noticed the actual story doesn't really matter that it's Christmas. No. It was just set at Christmas time. It just snows a bit. Yeah, well, you know, and it was set on the 22nd of December, which is only two days away. It's like the diehard of Spider-Man comics. Yes, it's just the fact that it's Christmas doesn't really matter. Yeah. But I picked it anyway. Leave yeah. me alone. Um, Page two. Some might say that this page is horribly overwritten, with Claremont giving us loads of backstory on the guard, Gus. Personally, I think this is good stuff. I once read a creative writing essay that said that good writers give all the characters names, even if it's something like Bob or Jim, as this instantly fills in backstory in the mind of the reader or the viewer. If a character has a name then we instantly relate to them. And you sympathise when something happens to them. Yeah, exactly. So it makes it more effective when they're killed or yep. hurt, or even if they're cannon fodder designed <laughs> to die. If they've got a name, you go, oh, poor Bob. <laughs> Bob had three kids at home. Like those two people in the X-Men issue. Yeah. Yes, exactly yeah. right. The two, he did exactly the same with them. They, they got eaten by the Nagari. So we had this exa- exactly the same conversation this time last year. Yeah, but we didn't do that one for Christmas. Did we not? We did that when we did the X-Men issue. Ah, right. Which was... Because we remember we said we're doing a Christmas issue in the middle of June. Yeah. <laughs> this makes no sense. We should have saved that one for Christmas. Um, Gus Havanis doesn't die. But this little bit of backstory about his past as a cop helps to flesh out a character who appears in a total of eight panels. Hmm. Clermont was great when he was at the top of his game, wasn't he? Whatever happened to him? Such a shame. What did happen to him? Nothing, he's just, he's currently under contract to Marvel, but they're not asking him to write anything. Fair enough. So he's getting paid for doing bugger all, apparently. Mm. You make a good living doing nothing, apparently, in the creative industry. Um, Peter Parker arrives at the Daily Bugle Christmas party. Um, And I love that he's got a terrible Christmas jumper on. Yeah, that's a Christmas jumper. (laughs) Well, it's a jumper. You don't normally see Peter Parker in jumpers or sweaters, do you? As a rule, he tends to wear shirts and, yeah. and stuff like that. So seeing him in jumpers quite cool. But it always fits in with the fact that people wear Christmas jumpers. Mm. So I quite like that. I thought that was good. The Daily Bugle bathroom is covered in graffiti. Which doesn't say a lot about the Bugle, does it? What kind of building's it in? Yeah. Who works at the Daily Bugle if they just covered the bathroom in graffiti? Jonas sucks! Ben Urich sucks. Does not! <laughs> 
you can't make any of it out. Murray 68, hi mom. Yeah, I presume all that was added by what Terry Austin. Hi to your mum on the stall door in the men's room. I don't know. Unless they know something about the mum that they don't want to. <laughs> Maybe that was subtle commentary. Um, the detail in the newsroom on panel three of the same issue is, is equally great. Right down to a Yogi Burr pencil holder. Did you see that? Yeah. I thought it was awesome. Abel confesses to shaking murder is a newspaper headline on the wall. Do they always stick Silly things on newspaper headlines, comic book artists. Probably. Like, no one did cover! Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. I quite like that. Um, panel four, Clark Kent is at the Daily Bugle Christmas party. Yeah. Which leads into your Spider-Man versus Superman. Yeah, well, the first one had happened at this point, hadn't it? Yeah. But it was the second one where Clark went working at the Daily Bugle. Mm. So maybe this was him just... just laying pipe and saying I could come and work here I'll put it all into shape and it's not even subtle is it how does it feel to be a mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan TV network not even subtle that they put Clark Kent in there so see sometimes you wonder is that been put in by the artist but the fact that there's a speech bubble there that just like punches you in the face yeah kind of kind of spells out and he's even coloured in his his famous blue and red suit yeah as he was in the bronze age quite a deal quite a great deal sorry um some lovely continuity notes here I still see Jameson was a fool to fight Carol Danvers was a reference to Ms Marvel 22 um when I was a kid I mean I'll lament the loss of, of footnotes quite a few times but this stuff like this made the Marvel Universe feel like a real place in that every event happened in, in completely separate books books I'd never read and never wanted to read had an impact however minor on what I was reading mm. so that's not like go and pick up Miss Marvel or you can't read this issue but it's just like oh fired Carol Danvers who's Carol Danvers because mm. I probably didn't know at that point Mary Jane just shows up at the party out of the blue at the bottom of this page as well yeah, because she totally works, though. Yeah, because well, what was doubly confusing about that now, I mean, it probably didn't matter to me too much as a kid, but at this point, Peter was dating, casually, a woman called Sissy Ironwood. So what's she even doing there, So anyway? what's Murray Jane even doing? Because he actually mentioned I lost track of time at Sissy's on page one. Yeah. So Sissy Ironwood gets a name check. Um, at this point in Spider-Man continuity, Murray Jane's dumped him. Mm. after he proposed marriage in Amazing Spider-Man 182. Now, I checked this on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. This issue was on the stands at the same time as Amazing Spider-Man 190, at which point Murray Jane hadn't been in the Spider-Man books for about eight issues. Mm. After he turned down marriage, she buggered off and left him. The Marvel Chronology Project, for some reason, has this issue take place after Amazing Spider-Man 206, two years after the comic actually came out which makes as little sense to me as the original mistake hmm. I mean at least here you could say well, it took place six months ago before Mary Jane left I suppose but that is two years after yeah that that made no sense to me I don't know who put the chronology project together yeah and why they thought that was a good place to put this story but you know whatever um, she then plants a huge kiss under the mistletoe on the man that she's just turned down for marriage eight issues prior to this hmm continuity not all that it would become perhaps in the 70s oh those five year timelines (laughs) 
Uh, she then sneaks into the radio car with Peter and Charlie Snow. I, I suspect the only reason it's MJ is that Clermont simply wanted someone who's a redhead. Yeah. Because How did she get down without being seen if they're going down at the same time? Oh, that's that's not the only thing that she does without being seen that's slightly confusing. Yeah. Later on, she'll she'll do something else. Because um, he couldn't use Sissy Ironwood, because who even remembers her anymore? I don't. Did you even know Sissy Ironwood? No. No, she was a, a non-entity as far as Peter's girlfriends went, I think. I don't think she ever went anywhere. Um, page 8. Talking about Murray Jane being able to magically disappear and reappear. The museum is completely surrounded by police. Yes. Okay. There are guards. Yes. There's a police cordon. We yes. quite clearly see it on the page. Through all of this, Murray Jane manages to sneak past the cordon past the police and through a conveniently unlocked door into the museum where she then picks up an ancient sword that isn't in a locked cabinet. Security at the (laughs) Metropolitan Museum was terrible in the 70s. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's not even a rational explanation for that, is there? She just manages to sneak past an entire police cordon. Shocking. Yeah. Positive. Only with all the red lights going on outside, she fits in. She just blended in with her red hair. Yeah. <laughs> Page 11. Clermont makes a big deal about the squidgy demon Spider-Man fights being very strong and sapping Spider-Man's strength. That has no payoff and no significant impact on the plot. Mm. Did you notice that? Did he just... Yeah, he fights the demons twice during the course of this issue, and both times he's, oh, they sap my strength! I am being weakened! And it's like, so is this going to have a payoff? And it never does. No, he just stays weakened. Yeah, and he doesn't stay weakened enough to not be able to fight them. Yeah. So I didn't didn't get that. That didn't make any sense. Although, page 14 is a lovely splash of red Sonya. She doesn't work very much, does she? No. Even when it's cold. <laughs> Which it is, because it's the 22nd of December. That is. In the story. Yeah. It's 20th of December for us. Yeah. Um, Paige. <laughs> will be when this goes up. Um, Sonia is not a creation of Marvel Comics, rather that of Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan the Barbarian. Whereas villain Cool and Gath seems to be a Marvel creation that is now owned by the Robert E. Howard estate. Other Howard creations, such as Cole and Solomon Kane, would also appear in Marvel Comics after Marvel began publishing Conan the Barbarian in the early 70s. And Red Sonja first appeared in Conan the Barbarian issue 23 and was spun off into her own book. Cool and Gath first appeared in Conan the Barbarian issues 14 and 15, but this would be considered his first Marvel Universe appearance. Whilst this issue was reprinted a number of times... As Marvel currently do not hold the rights to Howard's characters, this issue was not reprinted in the recent Marvel team-up Essential Volume 3. Mm. Skipped over it. Which is a shame, because Burns artwork always looks great in black and white. Mm. So, what about Dynamite? Well, Dynamite can't reprint it, because it's got Spider-Man in it. So, it's just... So, now it's just in this kind of nebulous limbo place, where it can't be reprinted. Mm. Which is, unless Marvel get the rights back to... Robert E. Howard's characters, but I doubt that's going to happen. Shame, that. Yeah. So, uh, Red Sonja possesses MJ, right? Yeah. But all, all these characters who possess people... Yeah. They, they just stop to get changed, do they? Uh, no, they actually physically 
embody the person that has possessed them. So because because Cool yeah. and Gath is the guard. So what happens to, to the body of the people he possessed? They're just kind of inside them in kind of a limbo state. So physically, how do you do that? I don't know. Where does all that excess body fat go? MJ doesn't have any body fat. What, the, the guard? And in Red Sonja's case, it's gone into her chest. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where did all that her come from? Mary Jane had a lot of her. Not it was the much. 70s. She didn't have that much. I d- d- Where did the clothes disappear to? It's a matter transference kind of deal, in, I think. The, the, the body... Right. Would you have preferred it if that had stood Mary Jane, but she had read Sonia's mind? Yeah. Would that have been cooler? If John, You know, if John Burr was writing this as well, he yeah. would have said that. And uh, He would have gone out of his way to answer my question. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Because that would have been cool for Spider-Man as well. Yeah. Because to him it would be Mary Jane, but it, it's talking like Red Sonia. Yeah. But the problem with that is Red Sonia wouldn't actually be in the book. Yeah. But then they would have been able to reprint it, so... Yeah. 50 for win-win <laughs> as far as Marvel would have been concerned um, I, I just take it as it's a manifestation blah blah comic book science blah doesn't really matter accept it and carry on yeah 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 that was my my thinking on it yeah page 17 no page 15 sorry Spider-Man says up up and away making this the second Superman reference of the issue yeah. page 17 Sonya makes reference to the last time she met Gaff and cut out his heart he then transferred his soul into the amulet, but had to wait until the exact moment to snur a passerby. His plan involves the Nagara, who are Marvel creations, appearing in numerous Marvel books in between 1975 and 2008. This copyright thing's very confusing. Yeah. Those Elder God things. Yeah. Do, do they have copyright to Lovecraft creations as well? I don't think Elder Gods would be under copyright. Fair enough. Because doesn't... They don't even make an appearance, so... Yeah, and Sony words. And doesn't Jack Kirby make reference to the Elder Gods in Fourth World and stuff? Does it? Well, that, that's because so. it's new gods. So yeah. For that to happen, they have to be old gods. There would have to be specific Elder Gods for it to be... Yeah. Your mother smells of Elder Gods! <laughs> so not... Uh, Cthulhu embodies you! And then they'd have to go, oh, yeah. right, well, now then they'd, have to... they'd have to pay some money then. Yeah. Ah, tentacles coming out of my mouth. But they can... Excuse me? <laughs> I didn't know we were a hentai podcast. Uh, page 22. <laughs> page 22. Again, the goop and demon touch makes Spider-Man feel all sleepy and weak, and yet this doesn't seem to prevent Spider-Man from busting loose from the X-shaped stakes. You're like Red Sonja busting loose. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's busting loose in an entirely different way. Um... Do you think this was an example of Claremont writing something Byrne didn't intend? Probably. If this was plotted by Byrne, which would be the reason they'd split up. Was, was this the early stages of the split up? Um, I don't know, because I don't know what issue of the X-Men was on the stands at this point. Maybe we'll see when we get to the bullpen bulletins. Uh, page 26 has a fantastic Ditko-esque panel. Um, always my favourites of Spider-Man leaping around, avoiding Gaff's blast with almost perfect colouring. Except for Spidey's face mask, which is all coloured red and hasn't been coloured with the reflected light, because you can see from the art that bit there should be yellow. Hmm. That's a shame. Because other than that, that's a gorgeous panel. But I always love it when they do that with Spider Man. Yeah. Having been on the panel about six or seven times, showing how fast he's moving. They do it with Nightwing a lot as well. Yeah, they do it with Nightwing a lot as well. I think it's great. I think it's a great artistic touch that you just don't get. You can't do it in live action. Mm. Um, 27 is a gorgeous shot of New York even though it's not particularly distinctive 
I quite liked how it was done. And then the ending. See there, we actually see Sonia morphs into Mary Jane on page 30. It shrinks a little. Yeah, so the, there's certainly an element that uh, Sonia's form takes over Mary Jane's form. Don't think about it too much. Yeah. Would, would seem to be the best approach. Five years. In my oh. Yeah, five years. Dan Dio. <laughs> it's five year timeline. <laughs> um... I'm a little unclear at the ending why Peter took the Staten Island ferry at the just end. Just to go all the yeah. way to the boat, just so MJ can wake up. Yeah, well, I mean, why even take MJ on the boat? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Maybe he's going to extreme going to extreme lengths to make sure that Sissy doesn't know that he was, <laughs> that he was with Mary Jane. Yeah. That would explain a great many things, yeah. Um, and then he chucks the amulet in the, the Atlantic. Surely he could have done that from anywhere. He's Spider-Man. Yeah. Surely he could have fl- swung out to the George Washington Bridge or something and chucked it from there. Rather than, as Peter Parker, paying for a boat ride. Yeah, with MJ, yeah. who seems to spend most of it asleep. Well, that, was, that was a waste of money, Peter. Yeah. Wasn't it? Unless the Staten Island Ferry's free. Yeah. In the 70s, I don't know, it could be. Maybe somebody who lives in New York. Hi, Paul. Could, uh, could let us know. Whether the Staten Island ferry is free. I thought this was a lovely issue. Absolutely wonderful. Great plot. Little bit out there for Spider-Man. Perhaps. But gorgeous artwork. Uh, We've said the Christmas setting is largely irrelevant to the story. But it does give the story a little texture that perhaps it otherwise wouldn't have. What did you think of it, Michael? I enjoyed it. But But what? Well, it was a Claremont, so it's not really... My bag, man. I love Chris Clark. When Chris Clark up between 78 and 88 was his absolute peak. Yeah. I think. Before uh, before it all started to go horribly, horribly wrong. Um, there's some great ads in this as well, with it being a 1970s comic book. The Philip Kaufman remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, starring Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy, which I recall was a really good film. I've not watched it in ages, but I remember it being really good. Um, came out along with a new comic called Shogun Warriors which came out from Marvel, which I have to confess, I know absolutely nothing about. Do you know anything about Shogun Warriors? I do mention her trimp. Uh, I do not. No. Yeah, it looks very Japanese. Was it based on a cartoon, do you think? It might have been. Possible. Could be a licensed comic book, never heard of it. Uh, there were posters that you could buy. Cheryl Ladd. Do you know who Cheryl Ladd is? No. Charlie's Angels. Okay. Uh, Farrah Fawcett Majors. Do you know who Farrah Fawcett Majors was? I do. But I've been seen with Farrah. You know that one. I've looked like Farrah according to you several yeah, times. Yeah, when you have your fluffy hair. <laughs> uh, Linda Carter. Ah, Wonder Woman. Yes. Wonder Woman. Susan Anton, who I vaguely recall. I don't know what she was famous for. Maybe she was just a, a, a model. I don't know. And Kiss, because it was the 70s. Yes. Uh, there's some brilliant toys. In the advert section. Battlestar Galactica toys. Those are pretty cool. They do, yeah. There's a Viper, a Colonial Raider, and a Colonial Stellar Probe, and a Colonial Scarab, which I don't recall ever seeing on the show. No. But well, look, when we went to one of those dodgy comic shops, when we went to Florida, yeah. they had one of the old toys, the, yeah. hang- the Hangar Bay, yeah. and two Vipers. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That, that was, was pretty, pretty cool. Catchy. Yeah, that was really good. So they're pretty good. Um, there's some Marvel stationery, Marvel pens, and a Marvel flying shield advertised by Captain America. For some reason, Captain America's wearing short sleeves. 
either due to a colouring error or a picture that was drawn in the summer. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe you just wanted some. Maybe just want to mix it up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, New York can be hot sometimes. Red, white, and pink. Yeah. 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 It's pretty good. Um. Sorry. Power Man and Iron Fist teamed up for the first time whilst the X-Men and John Carter Warlord of Mars also had house ads Spider-Man got a mini house ad for the five titles that he had at the time although Marvel Tales was a reprint and Spidey Super Stories was well lame and Marvel was plugging a mag called Pizzazz which featured Star Wars games puzzles prizes TV movies rock and funny stuff in what way did it feature funny stuff um in what way funny if you read the advert Funny like a clown. And then go, huh, I'm not buying that. <laughs> Do, does it amuse me in, in some way? Does it mean that kind of funny it's stuff? like Star Wars is the only thing that, that could possibly hook you. Yeah. Games, puzzles, prizes, TV, movies, rock, funny stuff. Oh, and Star Wars. And it says rock, but I bet it's just Foreigner and REO Speedwagon. Yeah, right with a bit of REO Speedwagon. Yeah, maybe depending on what issue it was, a bit of Genesis. <laughs> oh, is that REM? Should have called an album called Speedwagon. <laughs> that would have been funny. <laughs> um, uh, the bullpen bulletins this week was particularly interesting because 70s bullpen bulletins were always cool because they always had Stan's soapbox which was about something this week that I didn't particularly care about but the clubs, Black Panther. there's a little picture of Black Panther which is awesome There is it says happy holidays on it to remind everyone we're doing a Christmas yeah. show <laughs> they're doing this in our favour yeah it was very good of them to do that, that, that knowing that many many years later we'd be covering this comic on a podcast. Well, they didn't know that this comic would be set two years after its release. That's so. true. Very, very true indeed. Uh, the new Battlestar Galactica comic launched. Well, I've got most of them, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, Marvel's Battlestar Galactica series. And the super specials for Kiss and Jaws 2. Uh, something did confuse me about this this, uh, this bullpen bulletin's page. It says that Daredevil 157 states that it's the debut of a hot new lady writer. Roger McKenzie was a lady? <laughs> Who knew? Maybe, maybe he was the mum in the... Uh, <laughs> Possibly, yeah, the, 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 the gents earlier on. He used to be a she. <laughs> yeah. There's an incredible Hulk hostess fruit pies ad, which is just awesome. Maybe it was Kenzie McRoger. Possibly. Should we should we pull a Scott and Michael and, and act the hostess fruit pies ad out? Go, go on, then. All right, Who do you want to play? Uh, I'll, I'll be the... Dopey ass kid. Will you be the dopey ass kid? Uh, okay, I'll be the. Should I be the Hulk? Okay. Hulk just wants to be left alone. Why do puny humans hound Hulk? Huh? Human even follows Hulk here. Yeah, you are just a boy, not big enough to bother Hulk. Why would I want to bother you? You want people to leave you alone? I can take care of that. Hmm. Whoever's in there is friendly. Oh, tossing all these delicious hostess cupcakes. Mmm, smooth chocolatey icing. Moist devil's fruit cake. <laughs> Why is he Australian? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to say he's not in Australia, I suppose. It's okay, fair enough. That was actually me trying to do a, a New York accent. Oh, right, when he came out as Australian. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Boy, not very big. But very smart. I'm glad I packed it up Hulk <laughs> these cupcakes. Today Hulk thinks humans okay. Hulk may change Hulk's mind tomorrow. I'll never change my mind about Hostie's cakes. They're 
always great. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. Except not anymore. No! <laughs> That's very sad. What I want to know is why the kids going around with a bag full of Hostess Cupcakes. Would you not? Come on! <laughs> well... Hostess Ho Ho's, Hostess Ding Dongs, <laughs> these were the good stuff, man! To the red light district, yeah? <laughs> Dipping your ding dong in a ho ho is a joke that we've made many times before, and it amuses us every time that we say it, doesn't it? <laughs> God, we're juvenile! <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our Hostess Fruit Pies ad. It was with a heavy heart we learned of the passing of Hostess. It's very sad that next time we go over, there may not be any Hostess Ding Dongs. It's very, very sad. There wasn't some flea markets. Yeah. Also, tip of the hat, though, to Michael Bailey and Scott Garner, who used to do that all the time. We just ripped them off. Yeah, like this is po- Thai podcasters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, the next two comics that we're going to discuss are for mature readers only. And whilst we will try to do them in our usual family-friendly way, the odd reference that you may not want to explain to young children may slip through. Christmassy comic is the Clerks Holiday Special, which came out on December, on December, in December 1998 from Oni Press. The cover is by Art Danger Adams and has Dante and Randall from the Clerks movie looking askew at Silent Bob, who's dressed as Father Christmas with his black coat over the Christmas suit, and Jay is dressed as a transsexual reindeer with lights all over his body pulling a stupid face. Snoochy boochies. I have to confess, I never liked Jay. At all. Silent Bob's my favourite. Yeah, I found Jay supremely irritating. <laughs> I could live with him in the early movies where he was just a supporting character who just showed up a bit. But when he had and then when they started centering entire movies around Jay and Silent Bob, it was like, right, when they go back to being subsidiary characters, I'll carry on watching the film. He, he's made me laugh a few times. I've stuck around with this tubby bitch. I don't. Th- I can honestly say I don't think Jay has ever made me laugh. He's made me laugh a few times. Oh, fair enough. But Simon Bob's my favourite. He's like Ferb. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't talk unless it's something profound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quite like. So I like Dante and Randall, and I like Clerks a great deal. I just. Yeah. I read this all of this in their voices, Randall especially. Yeah, 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 yeah. He really does a good job of capturing. Given that he created the characters, though. That's well, yeah, I know that's perfectly understandable. But no, no, Jason Mewes never did it for me. I'm sure he's a lovely man. There are some cool video posters in the background because obviously this is in the the video shop where they used to work. Um, Star Trek, Star Trek versus, versus Jason. Jason. <laughs> they did that. It's called Jason X. Oh, yes, <laughs> Jason in the future. Uh, Godzilla versus Gorbachev. <laughs> Which, I don't know about that. Uh, what's that one that you can't see because of the... How do I get myself into these things? A deep shame production. At Home Alone 2099. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch Home Alone 2099. Uh, it was written by Kevin Smith. With art by Jim Marfood. Lettered by Sean Mutton Connett. And edited by Bob Shrek and Jamie S. Rich. Uh, Only Press doesn't doesn't exist anymore, does it? Yeah. Does it? Yeah. Oh, alright, fair enough. Um, the story... They get all the money from Scott Pilgrim now. Do they? Yeah. Oh yeah, Only still, still exists. Yeah, they do Scott Pilgrim, don't they? Uh, the story goes like this. At the Comic Toast Satellite Comic Book Store in Red Bank, New Jersey, proprietor Steve Dave and his obsequious assistant Walt slag off comics and customers equally. Until Steve Dave realises he's ran out of tape to wrap his mother's Christmas presents, so he heads off to the only place still open this late on December 23rd. That convenience store from Clerks. 
I didn't remember the name when I was writing my synopsis and the comic didn't tell us. Dante is Manning, and I use the word Manning in the loosest possible sense, the till when old Father Roy comes in for some food and gauges Max. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat. Steve, I'm this is going up as explicit. Though. Steve, Dave and Walt enter and complain about the price of stuff in the convenience store, which is called the quick stop, isn't it? Yeah. That's just come to me. Right, there you go. Uh, <laughs> but his hypocrisy is exposed when it's pointed out that he inflates the price of his comics. Next door at the video store... Wow, a video stuff. A moment's silence, please, for the video stuff. Very sad. Blockbuster's um, still around. Blockbuster's still around, yeah. Randall is being bawled out for renting the sphincter claws to a young <laughs> child instead of the Santa Claus. He's interrupted by a bizarre bearded old man called Nicholas Saint, who is after some midget porn. Randall has no memory of this man ever renting here before, but despite it being an older card, it checks out. He rents the tapes. <laughs> tapes. A moment's silence, please. <laughs> and ponders the man's address, which, it appears, is right between the convenience store and the video store. Dante tells him that this has been there, like, forever, and he's far more important matters to discuss. To wit, 15 years ago this Christmas, Randall bet Dante that, come the day that fast approaches, he would still be wearing his beloved Motley Crue stonewashed denim jacket. Randall moans that he can't hold him to this, but Dante is counting the 300 greenbacks that will shortly be coming his way. Dante has also decided to visit Caitlin Bree, who is still in deep shock following the procreation with a dead dude incident <laughs> in the movie. Randall suggests a caning will be appropriate to bring her out of her stupor. In this case, caning means using a candy cane to pleasure Caitlin. Dante poo-poos the idea out of hand. I love his... Uh example of uh, Ortho yes. with his cousin. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> December 24th. Randall decides to investigate apartment 58A. After rapping on the door, Randall is surprised to find it opened by an elf. Was it you? Yeah. Oh, excellent. Little tipsy boots. Yeah. Turns out apartment 58A is being used by Father Christmas after a few scandals caused them to relocate. Under the name Nicholas Saint, the rent he rented this place to get the elves to work and keep them satiated with porn. Nick shows Randall the gift-making machine and Randall uses it to make a weeble. Hey! Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. That's Bob. Weeble and Bob. No, that was Weevil. No, wasn't it? it was Weeble. Weevil and Bob. I showed it to you. Did you? Yeah. It's was Weeble a Weeble? An actual yeah. Weeble? Yeah. Excellent. That's the reason I was I was wondering if you knew what Weebles were. I don't I know, know it. That's from that connection. Right. As he works, Nick explains that the work isn't going according to plan as the two production staff he hired are lacking somewhat. Randall turns to see that said production staff are Jay and Silent Bob. Snoochie boochies. Randall is not above bribery to get them to use the gift making machine for nefarious purposes. At the Marlborough home for the emotionally troubled, Dante tries to converse with Caitlin. It's really quite a touching until foolishly he listens to Randall and introduces Caitlin to the candy cane. It makes her speak, I suppose, but I doubt the tirade of four letter abuse hurled his way is quite what Dante had in mind. 6 a.m. on Christmas Day. Dante arrives to open the store to find Randall asleep outside. Randall is talking gibberish about Santas and elves and Jay and Silent Bob, so Dante makes him a cup of cocoa and in the spirit of the season forgets the bet. After Randall leaves, he sees Jay and Silent Bob. Jay tosses him a weeble and a spliff by way of a Christmas gift and leaves wearing a stone-washed denim Motley Crew jacket. Them girls, girls. <laughs> 
page one. Steve Dave is based on Brian Johnson, who you will all know from the TV show Comic Book Men, as the one who looks like Alan Moore. <laughs> he doesn't seem to work at the store, so I'm, I'm still wondering why he's on the show. Uh, Walt, Steve Dave's obsequious partner, seems to be based upon Walt Flanagan, who, in Comic Book Guys, is the one who seems to do all the work and actually run Jay and Silent Bob's secret stash comic book store. Why the rules are reversed here must be an in-joke I'm not privy to. Both of them were first introduced in Mall Rats, were Walt had a, a particularly uh, unfortunate mullet, if memory serves. They were in Mallrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very briefly, <laughs> but both of them are in Mallrats. I vaguely recall the name Steve Dave was based upon Peter David, but I can't remember where I heard that. No. Yeah, I couldn't find any anything on the internet about that in the short amount of time I spent <laughs> researching it, by which I typed in Steve Dave into a, a search engine of choice, and that didn't come up. So. I, like, I like the line of dialogue there is like, do you have any loose figures do you have a loose mob <laughs> there is some brilliant dialogue in this it yeah. has to be said which is quite cool because I remember our comic shop had loose figures yes yeah yeah just in a box he'd yeah. let you play with them wouldn't he sometimes he'd let you take them all uh, page two Steve, Dave and Walt discussed the commercial sellout of marvellous comics by employing movie writers to write their comics such as Der Demon see what they did there Smith was writing Daredevil for Marvel at this point very clever, I thought. And holds up a copy of Water Chick from Alternate Interiors, an example of good alternative comics. Was this a dig at Promethea by Alan Moore or Peter David's Aquaman? It looks like Michael Turner's Fathom, but I don't know if you're well, right about been. the moment. Yeah, it could be Michael Turner's Fathom, that's true. Was Fathom any good? It looks it. Alright. Who I, published it? It might not read any good. Uh, if I remember, it was his own company. Because I wonder then if Aston. Alternate Interiors was... Ugh. How does that how does that translate to Aspen? I don't know. I, have no idea. I don't. I don't get that. I love some of the dialogue between Steve, Dave, and Walt is funny. I didn't know your mother even read comics. My mum badmouths them all the time. She says they make me masturbate. <laughs> oh, it's it's quite funny. Uh, there's a reference to Brody from Mallrats. Yeah, which I thought was quite cool. Uh, some of the comics on the racks are funny with badass mofo, <laughs> X crap. I thought X crap was pretty funny just because. 90% of X-Men stuff is pretty crap. Yeah, and um, what's, what's another one? This comic sucks. Yeah. The rest of it seems to be jizz mags. I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, does Kevin Smith actually like comics? I, I think there's, there is an element of self-loathing to Kevin Smith sometimes, yeah. to be honest with you. You think he'd have grown out of it at some point, given that he's successful hmm. and rich. Um, the, the names of the comics and the magazines on the next page I think are pretty hilarious Jugs just six sticks yeah just because of how pretty uh... <laughs> oh, there's also again yeah. newspaper headlines Scott Mosey arrested for murder go on what were you going to say then? I was just saying how um, blatant they are well see there's nowhere on this that says for mature readers but you know it's clerks so yeah I can't imagine many kids picked this up to be honest with you. Uh, page six I thought was hysterical. Father Roy orders a copy of Thick Sticks. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a male-orientated skin mag, just in case you wanted to know. He's got a whole page dialogue ramble about some people called Regis, Kathy Lee and Joy. I have no idea who these people are. I know Kathy Lee's a singer and an actress. Is she? Yeah. Oh, okay. Fair enough. And I don't know. Is Regis Regis Philbin? I don't know. 
That name seems vaguely familiar from somewhere. Um, I presume that this is a dated pop culture reference that doesn't travel outside of America. Yeah. I presume. That cover's just pretty damn funny. Which the cover? Thick Sticks. The one for Thick Sticks, yeah. nut busting action. Huge Ra- rather, than the, rather than the big blue circle, it's a guy's head. That's just... Oh, man gravy. <laughs> it's just wrong. It really is. <laughs> I mean, I suppose if this was now, they'd be referencing Honey Boo Boo. I don't know who that is either, but I keep I, seeing references to her. Oh, I know what it is. Yeah? Yeah, it's that a reality show. Gee, it's a reality show that's vile. I'm shocked. Oh, yeah. Shocked, I tell you. Uh, page 8 one of the funniest in the book. Steve Dave goes off on a huge rant about how the quick stop has a huge markup on stuff before it's pointed out he's done the same with the comic that came out last week. Tell him, Steve Dave, which is the name of one of his podcasts, isn't it? Tell him, Steve Dave. You take advantage of people who can't make time during their already overscheduled lives to make it to a reasonable merchant during business hours. Tell him, Steve Dave. And since this is the only place they can find what they're looking for at the end of the day, you bleed them with insultingly high markups that empty their wallets and shatter their faith in local commerce. You're what's wrong with business in America, my friend. How the hell do you live with yourself? Hey, hey, you guys work at the comic toys, don't you? You guys still have a copy of the Warty Chick with an alternate 18 pages? Yeah, it goes for 30 bucks. But it just came out last week. Snooze, you lose. I cut the swearing off the end. But that was really funny. Yeah. Maybe we butchered it in delivery. (laughs) But we're not actors, so, you know. Um, Page nine. This page comes close to being the funniest. Yes. To be honest with it. Just because of the name of the Just because of the Sphincter Claws, Santa's Triple Xmas Enema. Oh, (laughs) ho, ho, ho's taking in the mouth. Oh, (laughs) jeez. You've never seen Church of Fudge, have you? Santa, oh, no. No, I haven't. <laughs> Priest of I don't God. want to know. He doesn't even move yeah, I know. No. Um, <laughs> the irate parent is a tad peeve that Randall, Randall rented the sphincter claws to her child. The kid doesn't seem too traumatised. No. To be honest with you. I, 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 love, <laughs> I love the jokes about um, your husband as well. <laughs> Look, lady, sometimes movies get returned in the wrong boxes. I don't have time to go through every tape and make sure the correct title's in each one. I like to display a little more faith in my customers. Oh, you're not doing this. Oh, did you want me to read that out? if you want to. You rented my six-year-old son a goddamn uh, pornographic movie? He asked for his Santa Claus, and what did you give him? This. What's the difference? I'm sure this flick has about as many laughs and was as thinly low-concept and embarrassingly acted as that Tim Allen classic. I saw Santa's PC. <laughs> I bet you did, Jimmy. I bet you did. Come on, that was that was pretty funny. Lowest common denominator. Yes. But amusing nevertheless. Um, page 14. There's tons of dialogue on page 14, isn't there? Mm. So much so that the characters are reduced to being floaty heads yeah. in most cases. It's not too distracting. And as it's Dante and Randall basically goofing off and ripping, goofing off, sorry, and riffing on each other. As is the norm for Smith, although the dialogue is very overblown, it's very funny. Um, I'd, I'd rather have stylized, overblown dialogue that's funny than realistic dialogue that's neither realistic nor funny. Here we get Randall's treatise on why Herbie goes to Monte Carlo is actually <laughs> about a hate-mongering German car possessed of the spirit of Adolf Hitler. Do you want to do this one? Cool. Do you want to be Dante or do you want to be Randall? Oh, I'm not bothered. I'll, I'll be Dante. Okay. 
Remember when we watched Herbie goes to Monte Carlo in class back in third grade and Miss Availing asked everyone to write a report about it? Sure, I got an A. No, you got an F on it. Because it was your contention that Herbie wasn't benevolent Volkswagen, but rather a German hate machine possessed by the specter of Adolf Hitler. It was a sentient German car whose contempt for Jews was disturbingly apparent, for Christ's sakes. Herbie represented the repackaging of Third Reich ideals into something Americans would swallow easier. An affordable car! It was called the love book, you idiot. Yeah, but love of what? Read between the lines, my friend. It was the love of hating Jews. That's the movie I saw, and I'm standing by my assessment nearly 20 years later. <laughs> I love it when he does stuff like that. When he rips apart a movie that you think is actually quite sweet and innocent. And actually, no. Um, that is pretty good. I did like that page. I love at the top of the next page, when they're talking about the Motley Crew and we get fifteen a 15-year flashback. at the bottom of the page for that, where he's, he's going on about the Motley Crew and he's joking about it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh God. Because he doesn't remember owning the jacket. I like, I like Randall's mullet. <laughs> Yes, yes, he's got a mullet. Um, page 15, Randall's description of caning is both repugnant <laughs> and hilarious, but we're not going to go into that one. That's pushing it a bit for us, I think. Phones him every Christmas. Yes, yes, God, that's 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 just wrong. Uh, page 16, the description of the torture device made me wet myself, both from laughter and from feeling the pain. Which which is the part? Torture device. Um, her mother swore if I ever set foot near her daughter again, she'd have to stand construct a torture device that would yank a pube off an arrow in my nutsack until I'm sure because she then it would castrate me. Page 16 and 17, there's a running gag throughout the issue involving a cleaner at the quick stop who's more competent and much better at his job than Randall. That culminates with Randall getting punched out, which is why he's unconscious at the end of the issue. Um... There's a ton of in-jokes on page 21. William, who still can't see the sailboat, and is thus in the Marlborough home for the emotional oh, yeah. troubled, was in Mallrats, yeah. played by Ethan Serpley, who would go on to be, my name is Bur- Earl's brother in my name is Earl, with yeah. Jason Lee, who was yeah. in Mallrats. I only just got the connection there. Uh, Bob Shrek is a comic book editor, also interred at the Marlborough home for the emotionally troubled, for wanting to eat poop. <laughs> He would go on. I love his dialogue. Yeah, can I poop in your mouth? <laughs> not, not today, Mr. Shrek. It's Christmas Eve. <laughs> uh, he would go on to edit Green Arrow. Yeah. Which Kevin Smith wrote. Uh, page 21. Smith should actually listen to himself here, because I'm still waiting for his next Batman story. <laughs> which, which bit's this? Um, is it the bit before that? Where it's like, geez, what's wrong with that guy? Comic book publisher. Late books and deadlines will do that to you. <laughs> well, it's only, he's not actually solicited yet, so technically it's not late. Is he not even started yet? I have no idea. You were the one who told me that they'd, they'd finished Widening Guy Apart too. No, I know that he's done some of the scripts for it. I read somewhere. Right, but probably never finished them. Yeah, because yeah. that, that ended for Widening Guy yeah, well, we'll see what happens with that if it ever comes out. You know, like like Daredevil Target. Wasn't that the one where you only did one issue? Yeah, I never did any more. I have not one issue upstairs. Somewhere. Uh, page 22, all of the material in the Elf Workshop is exceptionally funny. Especially the bit about the Easter Bunny. Finding <laughs> out his brother was tested on at a cosmetics lab and going on a murderous rampage. 
I found that hysterical. I like some of the artwork as well. You've got the elf there who's had too much beer and just passed out. A little madman toy there. Yeah, a little madman toy. There's lots of little in-jokes in the artwork and, and stuff like that. Only double feature. And the palm mags on the floor. Ass y'all. Who's the name of one of the palm mags? Oh, God. Page 24 through 25. Smith's dialogue where Dante confesses his real feelings for Caitlin's actually quite sweet. Yeah. And then he ruins it, but, you know. Page 26, Randall makes a weeble. I used to have tons of weebles, mm. including weebles, helicopters and boats. <laughs> I used to play in the bath with my weeble boat when I was very, very little. I must have only been about five or six. I used to have tons of them. Because the thing with the weebles as well, when you finished with them, you had to pour the water out and the water came pouring out their eye sockets. <laughs> Slightly devil worshipping. <laughs> Very uh, funny. Weebles were awesome. They wobbled, but they didn't fall down. Yeah, because they were little eggs. I like the videos. Yeah, I don't Which recall the are videos. Weebles. Um, page twenty-nine. The candy cane falling from Caitlin's robe is. <laughs> that's just does wrong. And shouldn't Dante have gotten into some serious trouble for this? He, he ran very quickly. Surely they knew who he was. Yeah. Or she may have told him. Um, as usual for Kevin Smith. Uh, this is both crude, lewd, and in places exceptionally funny. Um, Smith's an exceptional writer, but he's always happy to go for the toilet gag. And I have to confess, I find that occasionally tiresome when he's working with established characters like Batman or Daredevil. Here, though, he's playing in his own wheelhouse with his own characters, and Dante and Randall are always engaging if a little too navel-gazing. And of all his films, they're the easiest to just drop in and visit. Even the terminally obnoxious Jay isn't in this enough to put me off. Because he's barely in it, isn't he? He's only in two pages. See, I can live with that. I can live with him when he's only in a couple of pages. Uh, This was the second Clerks sequel comic after the aptly titled Clerks, the comic book, in 1998. He did a couple of others. One was a deleted scene from the film. Was that the one where Dante got shot? No, that was the original ending for the film that they never bothered with. Yeah. And um, the other was a prequel to Clerks 2, which came out in 2006. But primarily the comics in the viewer's universe focused, added the movies, sadly, on Jay and Silent Bob. Was Clerks 2 any good? Yeah, Clerks 2 was alright. I quite like Clerks 2. Did you enjoy this one, Michael? I, you I seemed did. to. I did. Seeing as you chuckled all the way through the synopsis. I think it's probably because... It's aimed at people my age. Uh, yeah, it's very definitely a prepubescent audience. Yes, just because <laughs> Kevin Smith is still prepubescent. Yes, in many ways. Yeah. He's in a, a severe case of arrested development. It was still very funny, though. I, I, I thought it was exceptional. Uh, your choice well, of next, Christmas comic book. Next up, I chose my Christmas comic book, and I chose Happy, a four-issue miniseries <laughs> by Grant Morrison and Derek Robertson. <laughs> And then decided not to do so, and went for issue 49 of Hellblazer instead. Mainly because you've not got all four issues of Happy yet. Yes. And is that set at Christmas? Yeah, it's set in the run-up to Christmas. Oh, right, okay. It's like he's racing against time. It's a race against time. rescue the girl before Christmas. Right, okay, fair enough. And the bad guys are pedo Santa. Moving swiftly on. Yes, um, the cover by Tom Canton shows a man with a blurry face with red eyes and antlers on a Christmas tree and is surrounded by a red border with several objects inside including a doll with fangs and an upside uh, an upset gingerbread man with a snap top leg um I, I liked the cover I thought it was very unusual and very intriguing at first glance 
it's a simple Christmas style cover with decorated trees and other ornaments dotted around. Closer examination reveals that the ornaments are broken or have had skeleton faces in them or just generally disturbing in some way. My favourite's the gingerbread man bemoaning yes. his broken leg years before Shrek. Because he's got a little downturned face. <laughs> oh, I feel a bit sorry for him. Um, and little drummer boy with vampire teeth and blood running down his face. Inside the tree is a horned face. It's good in that you do want to look at it twice to see all the detail. Hellblazer logo is very small though. Yeah, and it's not what it would become, which was its final logo. Was that? Yeah. Would that not stay the logo? That I don't remember. No. I don't remember the Hellblazer logo. It, it changed, so it was very solid and. Right. Yeah. Okay. Take it away! Lord of the Dance was by Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon, coloured by Tom Ziuko, lettered by Gaspar, and edited by Stuart Moore, and was released in January 1992. Well, it had a cover date of January 1992. Um, it's late on Christmas Eve, and John Constantine is out looking for the perfect present for his lady friend, Kit Ryan, but he's being followed. The man following is a miserable old bugger, who is surprised when John pays him any attention. John asks him does he not like Christmas. He says no, and before he can go into into why, he says it might be better if they have a drink whilst talking. He asks John has he ever heard the song The Lord of the Dance, and goes into the origins of the song. In the 1960s, a man claimed to have written it, when he actually adapted it from the original which he destroyed. He changed the first verse and added two new verses and messed up the tone and rhyming of it. John asks how does he know so much about the song, and the man says he knows so much because the song's about him. He is the Lord of the Dance. A long time ago there was no Christmas, but at the end of every year there was a feast where people would go up to things best left out of a family friendly show, <laughs> but they always danced. The Lord had lived as long as the world, and every day found something that gave him joy. So he joined them after hearing their cries in the night, and danced with them. During the night some monks arrived and stopped the feast, to replace to replace it with mass for their new celebration called Christmas. The man the man was the spirit of the old ways, and it was nothing now that the new ways had started. John sees our beat of the man is and decides to cheer him up by taking him to the pub. He promises the man that he will find a spark of the old ways, and the two get drunk and spend the rest of Christmas Eve singing and taking the myth out of Chaz. Early in Christmas morning, they drop Chaz off at his house, and the Lord of the Dance leaves John, having learned that what he once had was right under his nose all along. John heads to Kit's place, and just before he enters, he remembers that he didn't get her a present. He shyly tells her this, and she says she didn't get him one either, but pulls him in by his tie and lays a kiss on him. As the two get undressed, two men stumble down the road, throwing up along the way, singing the Lord of the Dance. Uh, page one. First thing I noticed about this page, because Steve Dillon's not the regular artist at this point, is it? He's not. This is a fill-in issue by the guy who would ultimately go on to be yeah. the regular artist. Uh, Dillon's art's really rough in this issue. I like it. I did. It's not... Don't get me wrong, it's not bad mm. or anything. It's actually very, very good. But it's much rougher than his preacher work and even what you would do later on Hellblazer. He's not settled into using all the same faces. Constantine looks quite different, though. Yeah, but he'd use the old, scruffy, long-haired John quite frequently. Mm. I thought the art was really good. So I think his scratchy art's better than uh, his preacher stuff. Do you? Yeah. It's still noticeably Dylan. Because this art style is very much Vertigo, Hellblazer, beaten up 40-year-old man still running along. Yeah. 
It's, it's still very good. Um, page two. I loved this when I was reading it. This was about Hellblazer doing what I felt it did best. Taking the usual mundane and giving it a horror twist. So John's out Christmas shopping on page one. And he's rhyming. And, yeah, and it's all very well and good and there's nothing unusual about it at all. It's just a guy out shopping on Christmas Eve and then you turn the page and you get... And uh, um, you have to do it in a Scouse accent, don't you? And then be followed by a ghost. <laughs> I never can. Hey there. Hey there. I always read him as an American. He's not but American, he's, he's a Scouser. No, okay, I wasn't reading him as American, but when I read a story, I always read everyone in the same voice, my voice. So I, re- except for a few people who are like, mm. if they're movie-related or TV-related. So, but, so I was doing that with John until I found out he was a Scouser, because I didn't know he was when yeah. I started reading it. And then I tried reading him as a Scouser, and it just didn't work. And I've been followed by a ghost, which doesn't exactly help matters. <laughs> you can usually smell ghosts if you know what to sniff for, technical stuff, you know. <laughs> This is an odd one, I have to admit. First noticed him in Camden, didn't realise he was sticking with me till I got on the tube. Didn't know who he is or what he wants. Like, actually, I'm not even sure that he's a he. He's bigger than that, not even an individual. Almost the whole way of being in himself. Jesus Christ, is he miserable. <laughs> there you go. Read, read, pretty good. read it like that. It's better than Keanu Reeves. God. Whoa, be a father. Whoa, that's a ghost, dude. <laughs> Excellent. <coughs> um, this is the kind of horror... That, that Britain does well. Yeah. All the way from Hammer to James Herbert, everyday normality. Punctured in some way by the weird and the unusual. Mm. Page five, the writer of Lord of the Dance, who the ghosts say should remain nameless, is presumably Sidney Carter, who is credited as having adapted the song from an American shaker song called Simple Gifts. Uh, on page six, the ghost criticises the writing of the song, saying it's a bit all over the place, saying it's about getting stripped and whipped one minute <laughs> and all dancing the next. I looked up the lyrics. Yeah. I knew them anywhere, because everyone knows Lord of the Dance. Dance there, wherever you yeah. may be. I am the Lord of the Dance, said he. That. So everybody knows that. And I'll lead you all. Wherever you may be. And I'll lead you all. To the, the dance, dance, said he. Yeah, that's the one. What's Alfred doing serving in the... <laughs> that's Alfred there, isn't it? That's my page for. Um... To me, he, he's missed the point of the song. I thought it was a bit funny, though. Oh, yeah, it's funny, and it works for the story he's telling. But I just read the lyrics, and irrespective of its its religious connotations or anything, my reading of the song was the last verse is about spiritual rebirth. The character in the song doesn't literally leap off the cross. Rather, he, he's led others down a path of spiritual cleansing, and after his death, he's reborn, and his spirit's not been crushed. Mm. That's how I interpreted the song. Yeah, but when I read this and I thought of the lyrics, I was like, oh yeah, so it is. Yeah, well, so that's the, don't trust writers. Yeah. I mean, he's telling a specific story here. There's nothing in this that says this is in any way historically accurate, because no. I could find nothing about this on the internet when I did my research. Yeah. I could find the stuff about um, Stanley What's-His-Face. Stanley What's-His-Face. I could find the stuff about Stanley Carter and the stuff about the original Shaker song. So I'm presuming all this is Ennis's creation, as the original Shaker lyrics I found on the internet and the Carter lyrics are quite different. Yeah. And I, I found no reference whatsoever to say that the song existed before the Shaker song from 1848. Uh, the real evil here seems to be Michael Flatley from that god awful Lord of the Dance. Dances, I dance his whole Dancing like that. <laughs> okay. Ah, 
You know what I mean? Like river dance yeah. stuff. Uh, Michael Flatley's musical credits neither of them, and instead states that it's an old Celtic song. If, you know, as with all history, maybe they're all true. Who I, knows? I wonder if the tune was still the same. Uh, the Shaker tune is apparently the same tune as Lord of the Dance. Right. And he just changed the lyrics. Yeah. And if you look up the lyrics to the Shaker song, you can sing it to the Lord of the Dance. Right. So that seems to hold water. But all this stuff here on page five yeah. about adapting the original and throwing it away, I could not find any reference to that at all. So maybe it's an old folk tale, or maybe it is a Celtic song with Ennis being Irish, and there's some history there that I just didn't find in the time I had to research it for this. Maybe. So I'm not poo-pooing it totally. Yes. I'm just saying don't believe a writer <laughs> all the time. Do your own research before you come to any conclusions. Uh, regardless, I have to say that the dialogue throughout all of this is very evocative, especially on page 12 where it's very difficult not to read some political subtext where he's, he's critiquing the government. Yeah. Where he's talking about, and then I understood. Though the people were downhearted, the lawmakers and the churchmen were happy. For the people's delight was something they'd been jealous of, simply because they had no say in it. How can you order a man to feel good or legislate for a woman's delight? That's where the power lies in making rules. So that's... It's hard to not to read something into that, isn't it? It's... Well, I think it's very obvious. Yeah, but it's, you know, the, but that's, I think that's missing the point of the story, to be honest with you. Uh, he rolls up at the pub on page 14, and there's Chaz, not looking anything like Sheer Leboeuf. <laughs> no. In fact, looking at this issue, Sean Bean would make a good John Constantine. Yeah. Wouldn't he? He looks roughly the right age now. Although, uh, is, it the, is it Dangerous Habits? Yeah. That would have a completely different ending. Where John Constantine dies. Because <laughs> Sean Bean dies in everything he's ever in. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, page 15, panel 1 is perfect. Were they're just talking about... How do you put into words... Is this John? I have to do my Scouse accent again. Go on. How do you put into words the feeling of a good solid boozing session when the sixth pint goes down and you're locked on a collision course with the Hrata state that we visit in the joy and leave in agony, but with vague fond memories of the night before? You don't have to describe it. You just do it. Yeah, we've all had nights like that. Have we? Yeah. I, I don't think I have, but... Well, there's still plenty of time. Uh, page 18. I found it very interesting that despite quite clearly being labelled for mature readers on the cover, the Anglo-Saxon term for rutting is obscured. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Is that Would they only be allowed to actually swear when it became a Vertigo title? No, no. Right. I like the song they sing on the other one. Yeah. Yeah. One of the philosophers drinking song. I've actually sang that at school. Uh, did people know where it was from? Uh, no, they didn't. No, fair enough. Uh, well, they, they all thought it was very funny. Did they? Yeah. So did you take credit for it? Did you tell them where you got it from? Oh, no, I take credit for it. Oh, fair enough. I can live with that. Uh, page 23. Uh, the ending's quite sweet and all, but anyone who's ever had a skin full of ale and rolled back in the house at 3am knows full well that an energetic and fulfilling sex capade is not on the cards. When you're that rat-arsed, Kit'll be lucky if John can last three minutes. Okay. Maybe they'll do it a couple of times later when he's, he's sobered up a bit. Well, they do, actually. Because the, the continuity with Hellblazer, I thought, was really good. Mm. Because you know, it's pretty much real or not any age in real time. But this, he, he, he goes in bed at the end of this issue. Yeah. Stays in bed for a couple of days until the next issue. 
Which, all right, so they, they stay bit. in bed all over Christmas, do they? Yeah. They don't go and visit family or no, anything? No, 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 they stay in bed. So he wakes up for a bit, sees that the Vampire King's been messing about in his apartment, so he buggers off into a forest and talks to him for a bit. He's like, all right, gotta go home, goes back to bed. Fair enough. Good week, then. Yeah. Um, whilst the Lord of the Dance stuff may be historically dubious, or it may not, I just I just couldn't find anything of it when I was researching it, uh, that's not really the point of the story, is it? No. It's possible to read some religious or political subtext into the story because it's a Garth Ennis story. And there's always religious or political subtext, if that's what you want. Mm. Um, with commentary on the church's suppression of fun and political rulemakers destroying life for the masses. But that's to miss the point of a story that offers up a salute to the simple joys of hanging out with your mates and getting rat-assed. Which is all Hellblazer was. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ennis's dialogue's true to life and realistic and how people speak in the best way, and Dylan's art is suitably kitchen sink realistic. The colour scheme's rather brown and muted and quite 70s in its bleakness. But I thought this was an excellent issue that successfully captures the true spirit of Christmas. Family, friends, and a few good beers. Um, there's some great house ads in this issue. Oh, what, I'm sorry, I didn't ask what you thought of it, seeing as you picked it. I yeah. presume you liked it. No, I actually did like it, but unlike you, I read it as a political subtext story. See, sometimes... You know, a cigar's just a cigar. Yeah. And sometimes it's a huge phallic symbol. But when it's as obvious as it is in this, it... Yeah, well, see, there's an... It's like I say, it's any, so there's, there's always some kind of political or religious subtext to it. Yeah. If that's what you want to read into it. Hmm. If you don't want to read that into it, you don't have to. But what it is that makes this enjoyable is, is another Hellblazer story where the best part of it is spending time in a pub. Yeah. Wasn't that most of his Hellblazer story? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, there's some great ads, ads, ads in this issue, although the proofreader's messed up. The Batman Predator ad on the inside front cover and back cover are flopped. Yeah, but they're still black and white. Yes, they're still black and white. Moving on. Um, <laughs> with Batman on the back page and Predator on the front. And so the combatants are back to back rather than facing each other. Yeah. Particularly noticeable on the Predator one because there's Batman's kick. Yeah. So they kind of they kind of messed that up. Didn't oh, they? That's, that's quite cool, Andy Kubert. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very good, Andy Kubert, uh, black and white. But as I say, they, they kind of messed up. Did there, he do the they? interiors? I think he did. Yes, because I remember quite liking Batman and Predator, certainly the first one. Yeah. Yes, Andy Kubert did do the interiors. Oh, cool. Can't remember who wrote it. Was yeah. it Chuck Dixon? Does it not say on the cover? Uh, no, it just says Batman vs. Predator from DC Comics in Dark Horse. Uh-huh. Doesn't say who by, which is quite unusual, isn't it? Not even on the Batman side. Let's have a see. I don't think it does, because I've got all three issues of that. No, same uh-huh. thing, just as coming through. So no, it doesn't tell you who wrote it or, or whatever. Um, there's a great Inside DC article by Michael Urie about the DC Editor's Retreat and the letters page that, interestingly is split 50-50, sorry, with letters from the US and the UK. But perhaps not that surprising, given Hellblazer's popularity on our shows. There's a great house ad for Batman Dracula Red Rain, which looks great in monochrome, with only the blood from Bat-Drac's lips being red, and an ad for the 50th issue of Hellblazer Remarkable Lives. And that about wraps it up for Christmas 2012. It was a good one. Was it? Did yeah. you enjoy that? I did. Uh, two comics that were actually about Christmas and one that was just at Christmas. But yeah. any excuse to shoehorn <laughs> in some, some Spider-Man, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, next week's another one of our special Christmassy themed episodes, where Michael and I will both be looking at what we got for Christmas. 
That's next time. And then after that, we move networks. So don't forget, change your feed. Join us, won't you, on the Two True Freaks Internet Network radio station as Michael and I look at Avengers vs. X-Men. Yay. Michael's pick, not mine. Well, you agreed with it. I'm quite looking forward to reading it, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm open yeah. to enjoying it. Maybe I will, you never know. And after that, now we've, we, we've just been covering it. Yeah, oh, after that, this is for Ben Rush. Hi, Ben. We will be doing our Bye Bye to Hellblazer episode. Yeah. So Avengers vs. X-Men, we've not decided how many that's going to be. I think we've settled on three. Yeah. Because that's Michael's baby, so he's writing, producing, and editing, which means I get Christmas off. Hey! No, I don't. Yeah, no, I don't, because it's just, it's only <laughs> Christmas in five days. Shush, Penfold. Uh, after that, I've mentioned we'll be doing our one issue, one issue, one issue sewed celebration of Hellblazer, where Michael's going to pick three of his favourite Hellblazers, or three. Three. I thought we were doing three. I thought you were doing an early one, a middle one, and an end one. Well, so far I've chosen a Delano, a Nennis, and a Milligan, but there was a lot in between. And I wanted to do a Warren Ellis one. Yeah. So we'll so see We'll four. see how that goes. We may end up doing four issues that month, that week, sorry. Well, I suppose I could do 200 just because it's a, I like the issue. Yeah, oh, well, you pick what you want. I'll read them and you do all the gubbins because you're doing that one as well. Oh, but there was a good Andy Diggle one. Uh, yeah. You're whittling it down. No more than four, preferably three, because three today's took us nearly two hours. I haven't even read all the Hellblazer, there's still so many good ones. I know, well, just, sorry, I just picked three good ones from. Oh, but what about his 30th birthday? <sighs> I'm, I'll let Michael ponder that <laughs> over the Christmas uh, the Christmas break, and after that, happy birthday, Superman! And then there's the Neil Gaiman issue. Wh- that was awful. Which was is, it? Yeah, I didn't think much of that one. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'd have to read it again, but I don't remember liking it when I was twenty or however old I was. Um, after that, happy birthday, Superman, which is shaping up to be about seven episodes. Yeah. And I'm sorry if that if you think that's too many. <laughs> I apologise, but he's the first. And greatest. He launched an entire subgenre himself. He deserves the full treatment, and that's what we're going to be giving him. Seagull and Schuster didn't create a. Superman (laughs) launched all of that. Superman as a character. Yeah, as a character. So that's a little taster of what's coming up in the new year. We hope you all have a happy and safe holiday season. Good Christmas, Happy New Year. We don't say good Christmas, do we? Good, no. Happy Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yeah. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. And we'll see you in the week in between. The dead week, as I like to call it, where nobody does jack <laughs> all. boring week. Of yeah, where everyone's stuffed on turkey. Yeah. And we'll be back next Just week. Black people are all around like... Yeah, like Samus from Metroid. Yeah, and uh, we will see you next week with what we got for Christmas and then it's an all-new era for the show so be safe be happy and we'll see you next week goodbye Goodbye. you say bye bye bye
snakes and mice get wrapped up so nice with spider legs and pretty bows. It's ours this time. All together, fans and this with all our tricks, we're making Christmas time. Here comes Jack. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production, and all opinions expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com. That's T W O T R U E F R E A K S dot Libsen, L I B S Y N dot com. So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.